an epidemic. But it's not just the one you think. Children, teenagers, and young adults are facing an epidemic of loneliness. Generation Z, people born in 1997 and later, is the largest and the loneliest generation in U.S. history. Social media, virtual communication, and interaction in an increasingly hostile culture has caused our country's youth to feel alone, isolated, and left out. There are fewer and fewer opportunities for them to find new friends or develop meaningful relationships. The loneliness epidemic has been magnified by the pandemic. Over the past two years, we've seen an increase in violence, political and social unrest, and natural disasters across the country and the globe. To young people, the future may look bleak, but we're not ready to give up. The next generation needs you, and you need them. The only lasting cure for loneliness is connection. Connection with one another, and more importantly, connection with our Creator. We believe the best, and we want the best for the next generation. If we unite across generations, around our common salvation, we could see revival happen in our day. God is moving in the hearts of his youngest children. Every week, our kids, students, and young adults are seeing God work. From the little ones learning about the gospel and Calvary kids, to students experiencing genuine worship and discipleship in Spectrum, to our young adults finding life-giving community in Collective YA, God is moving in the next generation right here. So let's unite lock shields and invest in the future together. The future needs you. Good morning, Calvary Church. How are you doing today? That's good. That's good. A little bit low energy. Let's try that again. How are you guys doing today? There we go. There we go. Man, it is so good to be in the house with you today. Uh, I'm struck by how quickly time flies. Um, I haven't seen any of you since like last year. It blows my mind. Um, <laughs> yes, that is a dumb joke, but it's required. Somebody has to tell that joke at the beginning of every year. So just say, I've done you a service. We've gotten that out of the way. If you have a Bible with you, I hope that you do. Please turn with me to the book of Colossians. We'll be in chapter three today, looking at a few verses. And of course, if you hadn't noticed, I'm not Pastor Skip, as though my height was not a dead giveaway or lack thereof. But anyhow, my name is Taylor Braunis. I have the incredible privilege, incredible, you see how this is my second service today, incredible privilege of getting to be the family pastor here at Calvary. I love, to, I love getting to do what I get to do. I oversee our kids ministry, youth ministry, young adult ministry. But before we go any further, I just want to take a moment to honor Pastor Skip, we, I want to honor our senior pastor. So I'm a living, breathing example of the multi-generational impact that he's had. I'm a living, breathing example of the impact that this church has had. He dedicated me on this stage when I was an infant. He dedicated my wife when she was an infant, and now he's gone on to dedicate all three of our kids. So I'm just so grateful for the impact that he and this church have had. That's right. But on top of that, on top of that... 
He's also taken quite a risk in giving young guys like me an opportunity like this, and I'm very grateful to him. So thank you so much, Pastor Skip. Um, I'd like to share a message for the rest of our time today that I'm calling The Future Needs You. The future needs you. More than 100 years ago, back in 1914 in September, right as World War I was getting worse, it was escalating, the people in England saw this poster show up on their streets. It's a very stern-looking picture. I admire the man's mustache. I couldn't grow it, even if you wanted me to. But his name is Lord Kitchener. He was the British Minister of War, and England was facing a crisis. They needed people to enlist. They needed able-bodied Englishmen to join the army and join the fight. And that's what this poster is meant to represent. It's a call to enlist. Your country needs you for this fight. Today, we're not facing the same conflict. Praise God. We're not facing a disastrous war like World War I. But nonetheless, I believe that we are still at war. I believe that we're still at war, except this time it is a war for our future. We are in a fight for our future. And I'm here to ask you today, I'm asking you to enlist in that fight. Because the future needs you. That's what I'm here to say. Let's take a quick poll, if you don't mind. Raise your hand if you are dissatisfied with the direction that our country is going in. Just raise your hand. All right. Everyone. Everyone. Good to know. Something we need to fundamentally understand is that tomorrow's world, the future, tomorrow's world is built by today's families. Tomorrow's world is built by today's families. We're not going to change the future through policy alone. We all know that one policy is put into law, one person's voted into office, and then the next election it's someone else, and they, they take away that law. They put something else in its place. Policy isn't going to solve our problems in the future. The real point of attention that we need to now look to is the family. We need to start pouring into the family if we want to make a lasting impact on the future. Like you, I want to build a legacy that is going to outlive me. Let's start pouring into the family. That's what I want to talk about today. Mother Teresa said this. She said, what can you do to promote world peace? Go home and love your families. Go home and love your families. Tomorrow's world will be built in large part by the impact that we make today in our families. The way that you love your kids, your spouse today when you go home from church has an impact in the future whether you realize it or not. And as such, I believe that the text that we're about to read today... I think that it gives us something of a framework as to how we're supposed to understand this fight for the future. What are we supposed to do in this fight? Let's read Corinthian, or Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father God. Thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this family. There's a lot of places that we could have been here today, but you called us here, and I thank you for that. I pray that as we open Scripture, that you'd speak to us. 
And no matter where we are in our journey with you, whether we're close to you or far from you, I pray that you'd speak a unique word to us here today. We thank you for this. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I'm going to pose to you the same question that I, I asked myself as I've spent time with this text over the last couple of weeks, and it's this. What would my family look like if my wife and I intentionally and consistently sought to apply these truths in our family life? What would your family life look like if you sought to apply these things? And I also want to ask more broadly, as a church family, a spiritual family, what would we look like if today we all made a commitment to embody these characteristics, these attributes? I believe that we know the answer. I think that within our community, within our city, we would see revival happen. We would see renewal and revival happen. I want to see revival happen, and I would assume so do you. But if that's going to take place, we are going to have to make changes in our life. That's just, the, that's just the truth of it. We will have to make changes in our life. And maybe you're wondering, okay, what am I supposed to change? I think that our text gives us some clues. I think our text gives us three things that we are to become if we are to be the family that God wants us to be in the future. Here's the first thing, if you're taking notes. Be comfortably uncomfortable. I'm probably like you, I don't like being uncomfortable. I really don't like being uncomfortable. Like, I don't like standing in line a minute more than I think I should have to, which again, especially with what's going on right now, labor shortage, I'm having to stand in line a lot. Like, why am I having to wait so long for this sandwich? You go to a hotel and just like, you know how like the pillow is just like, it's just not right. Like it's either too thin or it's too thick. I, li I like the Goldilocks pillow. Like it's just right. And I sleep better when it's just right. Same with the thermostat. 68 degrees. That's where I live. Like that's, that's what I want all the time. It's two degrees off, colder, warmer. It's just, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like being uncomfortable. I like comfort. But what I've found in my own life is that at times, my desire to be comfortable can override my desire to be obedient to Jesus. There have been times that I've been guilty of sacrificing my calling for the sake of comfort in a moment. But if Jesus is going to do a new thing in our day, which I hope that he will, it's probably going to make us uncomfortable. I believe that he's going to draw us out of our comfort zone because that's what he likes to do. That's where he works best. When we can't rely on our own sensibilities, our own proclivities, he likes to draw us out of our comfort zone. We're more vulnerable that way, but we're vulnerable to the spirit. I think that that's what he's going to do. Before we go any further, though, it's worth mentioning some context. Like, what are we, what are we learning about today? So this, this letter, Colossians, is written to a young, vibrant church community in the Lycus River Valley in Asia Minor, what we would know today, part of Western Turkey. In this community, it's small, but they're gifted. They're passionate. They're excited. They're on fire for Jesus. And Paul recognizes this. He, he says, hey, you guys love each other so well. I hear stories in Rome of how well you are loving each other. But nonetheless, with all their gifts, all their passion, he still believes that they're missing one thing. He still believes that they need one thing, and that's maturity. He believes that they need maturity. We know that because earlier in the letter, in chapter 1, verse 28, he says this. He's, he says, him, Jesus, we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect. Better translation would be mature. We may present every man mature in Christ Jesus. And later, a couple of verses later in the next chapter, he says this. 
As therefore you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Meaning, you've started your journey with Jesus. You've accepted him as your savior. You need to start walking like him. Your life should start to look like Jesus now. Revival has taken place to some extent. Spiritual growth has happened in Colossae, but now Paul is saying it's time to grow up. You need to grow up in your faith. And as I've looked at various revival movements in American history, I'm always struck by one fact. They are multi-generational movements. Revivals are multi-generational movements because we tend to think of revivals as something that happens with the youth. And historically, yes, that's the case. Revivals often start with the young people, but... They only continue when those of an older generation, people who are more seasoned in their faith, come alongside to train, to teach, to give focus. Revival requires multi-generational unity to continue, to thrive. In Gen Z, again, that's the generation of, of people born from 1997 to 2013, give or take. I've heard some people call them the activist generation. They're the activist generation. They're passionate for justice. They're passionate for making the world a better place. And I've spent more than six years of my life in youth ministry. I can tell you this from firsthand experience. That's, that's the truth. They're the activist generation. I believe that Gen Z has the power, the excitement, the passion, the drive to reach our world for Jesus in a way that maybe the rest of us have never been able to. But they still need those of us who are older in our faith to come alongside them, to help them, to empower them, to encourage them, and to train them. And if you're not convinced of that, if you're skeptical, I would like to challenge you, look at where we're sitting right now. Look at this building we're in. This church family is a direct result of the last major revival that took place in our country, the Jesus Movement. That's where our church came into being as a result of that. The Jesus Movement wouldn't have happened if people like Chuck Smith would have written off that upcoming generation, that wouldn't have happened. Instead, he chose to come alongside these upcoming hippies who were coming to Jesus. Nobody knew what to do with He decided to come along and empower them. In fact, there's one story you can read about where is early in the Jesus movement, mid-60s, all these hippies are coming to Jesus, and most churches don't want them. But Pastor Chuck's church had just put down new carpet. New carpet, and a lot of these hippies, as was the style, they're coming in, they're coming in barefooted. Haven't had a bath. People were concerned, well, what's going to happen to our carpet? We just spent a lot of money on carpet. So one elder, he put up a sign that said, no bare feet allowed in here. Right? Makes sense. We, we just can't allow bare feet. But Chuck walked in, he, he saw the sign, and he immediately took it down, and he says, I will sooner rip out the carpet and the pews before I'm going to turn away these people. He was willing to do what was uncomfortable for the sake of what the Spirit was doing. He was willing to see that Chuck and Kay Smith and people like them were willing to be comfortably uncomfortable with this upcoming generation of then barefooted, long-haired hippies. And look what has happened. Look what God did because of their faithfulness. Not just the passion of the youth, but the faithfulness of the older generations to steward that passion. Look at me again at, at chapter, uh, verse 12. Therefore, this is Paul speaking, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. You sense that, that rhythm, another, 
another. Another, Paul isn't talking to individuals here. He's talking to a family, a family of believers. This is something that we're all supposed to take action on as we read it. He's explaining to this young, passionate church what God's new family is supposed to look like. These are the attributes that are supposed to define God's family. They may not define your physical family, but they must define your spiritual one. And as I read this list of attributes, I won't speak for you, but I'll say this. They don't look comfortable. They look rather uncomfortable. I don't like to be long-suffering. I don't like to be patient. If you know me well, I'm not patient. I don't like to bear with people, especially when they're doing something in a way that I wouldn't do it in a way that I disagree with, or maybe I think I have a better way to do it and they don't do it. I don't ha- I, I'm not, it's, I'm not, it's not easy for me to bear with them. But nonetheless, that is exactly what we're called to do here. We read Paul's words, it's assumed, it's assumed that there's going to be tension in this new family that God is building. Paul assumes it. His word assumes that, that somehow in this new family that God has built in, in Turkey in Asia Minor, that there will be tension, there will be friction, especially as Paul writes this to a multi-generational, multi-ethnic context. We see in the verse right before the passage that we just looked at, verse 11, Paul's talking about that in this new family of God that there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. I believe that if we are going to see revival in our day, we must. It is critical that we overcome any generational tension that exists in our homes, in our families, and in our church. We must overcome that. Boomers, Gen X, millennial, I'm a millennial, Gen Z. When you listen to the way that we talk about one another, specifically how we talk about generations that aren't our own, it's overwhelmingly negative. It's always negative. It's always toxic. You talk to somebody younger, they might say, well, baby boomers broke the economy. I've heard that. I don't fully know what that means. But nonetheless, you talk to somebody who's older, they might say, Gen Z is ruining America. Again, not entirely sure what that means, but that's the level of discourse that we have in our country right now. When we speak about people who are older or younger than us, that's oftentimes how we're speaking about them, negatively, critically. fact of the matter is, it's time that we stop allowing cable news, stop allowing social media to shape what we believe about other generations. It's time that we stop doing that. You want to learn about what the next generation is facing? Turn off the news, turn off your phone, turn about 90 degrees, talk to the person sitting next to you. Ask what they're going through. They're younger, ask, what are you facing at school? I haven't been in school in a while. What are you going through? If you're, if you're younger, ask the person who's older, what have you been through? Like, what are your life experiences? What are the lessons that you've learned? Maybe I can learn from you so that I don't have to face the same difficulties. That's a far more effective, far more authoritative source of information when we talk to each other. But we all can see, though, well, as it currently exists, there's still tension. What are we supposed to do about it? How are we supposed to interact with one another? The answer is based on our identity. Based on our identity, who we are. That's because identity determines our conduct. The way I see myself as a human being impacts the way I see others. 
And as a result, the way I see others is going to naturally impact how I interact with them. If I have a negative, faulty, unbiblical view of myself, I'm going to have a faulty, unbiblical view of others. And that's absolutely going to impact how I talk with them, how I act with them. But nonetheless, it does not take a sociology degree, doesn't take a, a psychologist to tell you we are facing an identity crisis in our culture right now. I think you would agree. We're facing an identity crisis. We don't seem to know who we are. The very construct, the idea of identity is now fluid and ever-changing. You can't nail it down anymore. But we as Christians, we also need to ask ourselves, who are we? But not to allow culture to define our identity, not to allow even our generation to define our identity. What does God say about our identity? He's our creator. He's the only one who has the authority to define who we are. And according to Paul, this is who we are. Look at verse 12 with me. As the elect of God, holy and beloved. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what you came to church with, but maybe you need to be reminded of that. I don't know what people have said to you, spoken about you. If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're chosen by God. He chose you. He loves you. He considers you holy and beloved. You're his masterpiece. He died to save you. You are innocent in his sight because of the work of Jesus. You need that. Maybe you need that reminder today. But even more so, the person sitting next to you, even if they're much younger, much older than you are, if they have also placed their faith in Jesus, those things apply to them too. That is also their identity. Whether you'd like their style, their fashion, their music, that is also their identity. You share a common identity with them. We all do. Paul doesn't stop there, though. He says, okay, now it's time to put on something. We need to put on something. He uses the, the language like as though you were putting on clothes. Every morning, you're getting dressed. You're putting on something. The late Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he talks about this as our spiritual apparel, spiritual clothing. You're supposed to put these on every day. But let's boil it down. Let's make it more simple than that. Paul is telling his readers, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Because who, who perfectly embodies meekness? Who perfectly embodies long-suffering, impatience, kindness, forgiveness? It's not Paul. It's Jesus. Jesus perfectly embodies all those things. And I think it's time that we be honest with ourselves. Are these attributes present in your family life? You speak to your spouse, speak to your kids, you speak to your in-laws. Are these attributes and characteristics present? Are they present in the way that we speak to one another here at church? Are they present when we, when we interact with other Christians? We have to ask ourselves that. We read the word meekness, like what does that mean? We don't typically use that in common parlance anymore. This is how commentator William still notes this. I like how he defines it. He says, meekness means that we are to be considerate of other person and their concerns, not demanding our own way. Ouch. But then he goes on to define long-suffering or patience as this. He says, the ability to not become frustrated and enraged but to make allowances for others' shortcomings and to tolerate their exasperating behavior. If that's the test, I'm not getting a passing grade. I'm not. I don't like to bear with people. I don't like to be long-suffering. 
But that's what we're called to be. Move on to verse 13 again. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. We turn on the news, we turn on our phones. Everywhere we look, we live in a world of constant complaint. Everybody and their dog has a complaint against one another. Everybody has a beef with one another. We're all griping about something on social media. That's what social media is for, right? To gripe about something. We turn on our phones, we turn on the TV. It's, it's like we're living in a constant, perpetual outrage machine. We're never happy, we're never positive, we're never constructive, we're angry, we're upset. Instead of fueling connection, creating connection between human social media is fueling conflict between people, between generations. So our challenge is, as we read this, that maybe the next time that your family member, friend, coworker, posts something on Facebook that you don't agree with, it's a political perspective you don't share, you think is wrong, maybe they share an article from a news source that you don't think is reliable. Instead of going into attack mode, which is what a lot of us have learned to do over the last couple years, Let's, let's challenge ourselves to bear with them. Bear with, meaning put up with their shortcomings, to tolerate their exasperating behavior. What if we sought to bear with them instead of berating them in the comments? Because when we truly consider the magnitude of our own sinfulness, when I look at the things that I have done in my life, the guilt that I have before my God, and I also consider all that he has forgiven me of, how can I then so quickly turn around and withhold forgiveness from someone else for what is a much lesser offense? When we consider how deeply we have offended and sinned against God, and yet, because of the gospel message, we place our faith in Jesus, we're forgiven of all sin, past, present, future, how can we withhold forgiveness from anyone for anything? Forgiven people should be forgiving people. When I got up this morning, I walked to my car. Uh, it was 20 degrees outside. I'm a lifelong 505 boy. It's too cold for me. Way too cold for me. If, you're, if you come from like the Midwest or like Michigan, um, I'm just, you're going to laugh at me because 20 degrees is like summer weather for you. It's not for me. It's very cold. And I realized as I was walking out of my house, I was already fully clothed. That should encourage you. Had all my clothes on. But I realized I'm missing something. There's one thing that I'm missing here. Because I'm not prepared for my day yet. It was my jacket. I needed to put on a jacket. There was one final piece of clothing that I needed to put on. Paul tells us to do the same thing in verse 14. He says this. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And no matter whether you're in here, you're boomer, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z, doesn't matter. The one attribute that should be present in all of our families is love. It's love. Even a vowed critic of Christianity, person who did not like the message of the gospel, couldn't stand the Christian message, thought it was weak, Friedrich Nietzsche, he understood this fact because this is what he said. He says, in family life, love is the oil that eases friction the cement that binds together, and the music that brings harmony. Nietzsche said that. Surely we can grasp that. At home, at church, our families should ultimately be communities of love. 
above everything else, is your family known as a family of love? Is our church known in our city as a community of love? But we need to understand it's not love as the world defines it. Love as God defines it, because the word here is agape, unconditional love. The same love that God has shown us through Jesus is the same love that we are called to show other people. Demonstrating agape love in our family, I think we tend to have a very idealistic idea of what that's supposed to be, that there will be an absence of conflict. Everybody's just going to get along. Agape in a family context doesn't mean an absence of conflict. It just means that when conflict inevitably arises, agape governs our response to it. We're supposed to Respond to conflict with unconditional love. To be the family that God wants us to be is going to require us to be comfortably uncomfortable with one another. We're all going to do something that's going to rub someone else the wrong way. May not be wrong, may not be bad, but it's not their style or it's not your style. But if we want to make a commitment, let's, let's commit to being comfortably uncomfortable with one another because we don't want to hinder what the Spirit wants to do. I believe that the Spirit wants to do something in our, in our city, in our church, in our family. Let's not be the reason why he can't. Let's not stand in his way. Here's the second thing we need to be. Peacefully prophetic. Look at verse 15. It says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. We can all agree that our world is desperately searching for peace today. All the wars, all the conflicts. Think of Afghanistan. Think of the natural disasters, the tornadoes a few weeks ago, the wildfires up north in Colorado the last couple days. People are seeking to find peace. Some people look for peace in policy and political action and activism. Other people look to artistic expression that maybe if we're just enlightened enough, then maybe we can all find some level of peace. But no matter who you are, no matter what approach to peace you're taking, nobody ever seems to get there. It's always the unattainable goal. The United Nations has been around since 1945, and never once, never for one moment, have the nations been united. They've failed. John Lennon released a song, Give Peace a Chance, in 1975, but never once since then have we been able to successfully give peace a chance. Maybe we don't even want to. The problem is that we're looking for peace in the wrong place. We're looking for peace in the wrong place. Paul instructs these Colossian believers to let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Peace needs to take place internally, be experienced internally, before it can take effect externally. Needs to be experienced internally before it takes effect externally. And as I studied this text, I learned that the Greek word that Paul uses here for rule, as in rule your hearts, carries the, the meaning, the connotation of an umpire. Think of the umpire in, in, in a game of baseball. They call the ball. Are you allowing God's peace to be the umpire of your heart? Are you allowing his peace to help influence and make the decisions in your life? Or are you seeking to find peace through control of your situations? You think that maybe, maybe if I just have enough money in my bank account, that will be it. Then I'll be at peace. When my kids are all passing their classes, they get into good schools, that's when I'll be at peace. When I retire, that's when I'll be at peace. My friends, those are all good things. It's okay to pursue them, but just know that is ultimately the peace of the world. It's not going to bring you lasting peace. Those are all good things, not lasting peace, not the peace of God. The fact that we seem to often miss is that real peace 
Divine peace isn't engineered, it's embraced, it's experienced. We're all desperately searching for peace. We need to understand that real peace is a person. He's a person, not a, not a policy. Can't vote in peace. Peace is Jesus. Because Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way the Lord be with you all. Jesus doesn't just bring peace. He is peace. He doesn't bring peace. He is peace. And if Jesus is also the Lord of your life, which I hope you've made that decision to allow him to be, then it's time to embrace the peace that only he can offer. The peace that we have with God because of Jesus should then be radiated out into our interactions with one another. When you are peaceful inwardly, it's going to be possible for you to be peaceable outwardly. Inwardly peaceful, outwardly peaceable with others. Verse 16, it says, he says, Paul speaking, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Not only are we called to be peaceful, but also called to be prophetic. And by prophetic, I don't mean that we're all running around sharing visions of the future with one another. Not all of you have the gift of prophecy. That's okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Old Testament scholar, he defines the work of a prophet primarily as this, and I really like it. He says this, prophets are people who discover what God says and can speak on his behalf. If that's the definition ultimately of a prophet, I would argue it is, then we are called, all of us, whether you have the gift of prophecy or not, to be a prophetic presence in your family. We all have access to God's revelation. We don't have to discover what God's saying. We're not waiting on some fresh revelation. We got it. Got the whole thing. Read it, but don't just keep it to yourself. We need to share this with our families. Share this with one another. We're supposed to, we're supposed to just saturate our culture and our world, our churches, with, with God's word, not just through the spoken word, but through song. And even if you're not a good singer, it's okay. You can sing with grace. Paul's command to admonish one another, it's actually meant to happen across generations. We tend to think of that as something that, okay, it's the older generation, they're always talking down to the younger generation. But not so in Paul's world. He's, he's envisioning a multi-generational, cross-generational conversation. People of any age teaching each other God's word. And we know that because in the next section, starting in verse 18, Paul then begins to address different types of people in the Colossian con congregation. Talks to wives and mothers, to fathers and husbands, employees, talks to employers. But in verse 20, he talks directly to children. He's assuming children are hearing this. Yes, in the family's role, children are meant to be obedient to their parents, meant to submit to their parents. However, in a spiritual setting, they're considered equally responsible as Christians. Admonish one another. And in this context, scholars think that Paul's use of the phrase word of Christ doesn't just mean scripture in general, but more specifically, the message of the gospel. Let's apply that today. Are we allowing the gospel message to saturate, to define our conversations? When we understand gratefully that God has given us grace through Jesus, are we quick to show that same grace to others, especially when they irritate us? 
Are we letting the gospel saturate our conversations? And again, these conversations should be happening across generations. As adults, are we open to the fact that God might speak something to us through the mouth of somebody much younger than us? Do we think that somebody younger than us could teach us something? And I have young kids. I have three young kids. My oldest son, he's five. And sometimes I'll be driving him and his brother to church, to, uh, to school and to church. Occasionally, just, you know, silly conversation just happening. I'm just driving, whatever. And then occasionally, I'll hear one of them say something so deeply profound and philosophical that comes out of nowhere. Like, Dad, why did God create the world with color? It's like, I don't know. Never thought of it that like that's really deep. That's profound. If you have young kids too, you understand how that feels. But likewise, if you're in here, you're younger. Are you willing to listen to the voice of somebody who's older than you, who has more wisdom than you do? They've been through more. They've had more life experience. Are you willing to listen and to learn from them? Are you willing to admit that maybe you don't know everything? We must be willing to learn from one another. Paul's vision for this Christian family we're all a part of is that we're learning, we're teaching one another with God's word. And sometimes we might even need to correct one another when we go off course, but we do so in love. We speak the truth in love to one another. If we want revival to take place in our day, which again, I would assume that all of us do, it's going to require that we are more intentional about building one another up. We live in a culture that it's easy to tear each other down. Because when you tear someone down, you feel better about yourself. But Paul is telling us to do the opposite. Build one another up. Speak the truth in love. And if we want to advance the mission of the kingdom of God on this earth, as we're in this fight for our future, we need to be the family that God wants us to be. We need to be comfortably uncomfortable with one another. Even when the people around us are doing things that maybe aren't our style, aren't our preference, we still need to love them. We need to be peacefully prophetic. And finally, we must be faithfully focused. Look at verse 17 with me. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Returning to the topic of revival in American history, we've generally seen one every 40 years or so. About every 40 years, we see a big revival take place, which means, historically speaking, we are overdue. We're past due for revival in this country. I and many others are asking, well, what, what are we missing? What's going wrong? Why hasn't God brought revival like he has in the past? And I want to clarify this. Revival is ultimately, this is a thing that God does. This is his work. He sovereignly, graciously pours out his spirit on his people at the time and the place of his choosing. However, I have a theory. Maybe the reason that he has not decided to pour out his spirit in a broad sense like he did in the Jesus movement, maybe that's because we have become so defined by a critical spirit in our day. We become so critical of one another. On top of that, we become so distracted. We no longer have any focus on what God wants us to do. We're so distracted, we turn on our phones and we're distracted. Paul's already laid out kind of some, some context, some, some explanation on how to overcome the critical spirit that we often have. But he also addresses one final thing in this passage that I'm sure the Colossians dealt with, but I'm sure that we deal with it maybe even more than they did. That's the issue of compartmentalization. Compartmentalization. Here's what I mean by, I mean by that. We put a box. We, we have a box for everything. I have, a, I have a box for my family, 
have a box for me, have a box for my job, have a box for recreation and entertainment. And now I'm a Christian, so I also have a little box for Jesus. It's smaller than the rest of them because I only read my Bible for like, you know, a minute or two a day, maybe, possibly, maybe even just once a week. And I also am supposed to go to church, so little box. But Jesus gets his own box now, so that's, all, that's, what, it, that's what it takes, right? We're not always thrilled when we understand that Jesus might have something to say about what's happening in these other boxes. We don't want Jesus to tell us how we're supposed to act at work. We don't want Jesus to tell us how, how we're supposed to act in our family. We don't want to hear what Jesus has to say about our political views. We don't want to know what Jesus has to think about our entertainment and recreation. Our culture likes to divide things up into one or two categories. We have sacred and we have secular. The holy, the spiritual, and then the rest of just the catch-all. Sacred and secular. The New Testament does not recognize that. That dichotomy, that division, doesn't exist in a scriptural worldview. Christ is supposed to have a lordship over all of our lives. Because that's exactly what he says in verse 11. Christ is all and in all. Whatever you do, do all things. Not a few things. Not, hey, do three things. That's the quota. You're good for the day. You can do the rest in your name. Do everything. Do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus demands and deserves lordship over your life. And I'm here to tell you, he is far better at running your life than you are. He deserves lordship over your life. Because when we say Jesus is Lord, we should be allowing him to be the Lord over every area of our lives. It's everything we do, whether that's here at church, when we go home, when we go to work, Everything we do should be done in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I don't know about you. I can only speak for me. As I've spent time with this text over the last couple weeks, I leave feeling very convicted. I realize that there's a lot that I'm either not good at or I need to get better at or there's, there's attributes here, kindness, meekness, that maybe I demonstrate, but I don't demonstrate to the extent that I need to. Maybe you feel the same. Maybe the Spirit has shown you things that you need to work on in your own life. Let me speak for all of us, though. Where does it start? Something we all need to work on? Let's just be more thankful this week. Let's work on that this week. Be thankful. Be more thankful this week than you were last week. Yes, as Americans, we like to think, oh, well, we have a, we have a whole holiday for being thankful. But let's just be honest. We're not as thankful the other 364 days out of the year. We need to be thankful. Paul mentions gratitude, thankfulness, that concept three times just in these verses. This isn't even the whole book, just these few verses. I believe that it's important to Paul. It should be important to us. And that's because people who are thankful, thankful to God, thankful for one another, are going to be far less likely to be critical, to be self-serving, to be antagonistic, to be rude towards one another. God's family should be a thankful family. Whether you're in here, you're a baby boomer, whatever generation you are, Gen X, millennial, doesn't matter. We're a family. We are a family, whether you like it or not. We're a family. God has brought us together in this room, into this community for a reason. And I believe that's because God wants to do something in our day, and he wants all of us to be a part of it. I don't know if you feel like you don't have anything to offer this next generation. Maybe you don't. 
I'm here to tell you, you're wrong. Yes, you do. You do have something to offer this next generation. They need you. They need you. They need your wisdom and experience. But you need their passion. You need their energy. We need each other. We can't do this alone. Our culture is ripping us apart at every possible seam. We must come together in unity. We're called to be the family of God, and I believe God wants to do something, and I'm here today. I'm asking you to enlist. Will you enlist in this, in this fight for the future? Because I believe this, the future needs you. And whether you hear anything else that I've said today, I want you to know this. Jesus is not done with you. He's not done with you. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what you've done. Jesus isn't done with you. He's not done with you, my friends. But he's also not done with our city. He's not done with this church. He's not done with our state or our country. And he is definitely not done with this next generation. Let's move forward tomorrow believing that the best is actually still yet to come because he's not done with us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for these moments we've shared. I pray that you would light a fire in us, God, young and old. Warm our cold hearts, God. May it never be said of us that we have left our first love ignite a fire in our hearts, God, a passion for loving one another. And I pray that this week, help us to be thankful. You've given us so much. Help us to be thankful and loving towards one another and help us to be open to what you want to do in our time, God, because we believe you're not done here. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know.